This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Story versus Conceptual Problems. The Chester Cat Hoax. Allegory. And the Bridgewater Triangle. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut... Uh, why, will you look at that, Robin? The, the miniature dwarf is slightly smaller than the miniature gnome. Or is that the other way around? I can't tell. They're so miniature. Does it really matter, Robin? Does it really matter? Or is it more important that they're beautifully painted and there's plenty of Doritos? Today, you have a yen to talk about story problems versus conceptual problems, things you think are a problem that don't turn out to actually be a problem when the rubber hits the road and the dice hit the table. Is that A fair summary? Yes. It's somewhat surprising to me sometimes as a designer uh, to be asked certain questions about, does your rule set answer this particular question? So I guess the the broader topic is, what questions is a rule set trying to answer? So my first example that I will throw into the pot here of something that people sometimes seem very concerned about, uh, but the real answer is, that doesn't matter, (laughs) is comparing the relative abilities of different player characters, uh, particularly fine gradations of that. So someone noted that recently that the thing that they missed in Quickshock uh, that they got in earlier versions of Gumshoe was the idea that one person in uh, most Gumshoe games can have three points in an investigative ability or two or one. And that tells you that the person who has three points is three times as good as the person who has one point, except that's not actually what that measures because Gumshoe never provides you an objective comparison of all of the different characters. And also, if you have one point of an investigative ability, you're also really awesome and great. And so the difference is, how do I tell between awesome and even awesomer? And, and again, the answer to that is, what investigative novel or movie or TV show does that ever come up? Where the question is, we are two experts in this field. Which of us is experter? You might have banter between the characters. They might have them trying to one-up one another. But it's hard to imagine anything happening in a gumshoe game where the relative difference between one and three actually matters. One player may be able to spend three points and get the super awesome benefit that comes with that or spend one point three times where the other person can only spend it once. But that's still nothing where you're 
the main issue is which of these experts is best. Yeah, if, if you're having a duel of expertise, there's a, a number of you know, James Bond identifying wines or Lord Peter Whimsey uh, doing that. That's not between two player characters. That's between our hero and bad people. And so the fact that you have, you could argue that, oh, my character has three in high society. I should do the wine test, not you who only have one. But you'd argue that anyway, because that's what spotlight time does. And if the character put their points in that, it's the same situation. You have a character with, with general abilities. You have a character with 10 points in shooting and a character with four points in shooting. Neither one of them is saying, you know, oh no, you do the shooting. If there's a marksmanship thing, the character who built themselves as the spotlight marksman does a marksman thing. But in combat where both of them are shooting, it's not an issue that one of them is, you know, Chow Yun Fat and the other one is Tony Long. It's just, you're both shooting at the bad guys, right? That's what's going on. Right. And also in games where uh, the fine gradation between uh, things has a level of randomness added on top of it, which investigative abilities in Gumshoe don't. But let's say, you know, you have a strength of 13, I have a strength of 15, my character does, and we each have to make strength rolls to see if we roll the rock up the hill, and the strength roll is either a bonus on a d20 or it's the, the number times five on a percentile dice, whatever it is, the thing that happens in the game of one of us succeeding and the other failing, or both of us succeeding, both of us failing, none of those things, because there's a random level attached to it, tell us anything about who is better. It could be that the one with a slightly lower number is the one who winds up prevailing because that's the way the role went. And again, except for the very rare instances where characters are doing some sort of PvP contest against each other, A, it doesn't matter, and B, it's all up to the happenstance of the moment and doesn't really tell you anything. And I guess what this whole class of questions comes out of is the thought that here's a character sheet. It's got a lot of numbers on it. Therefore, it must model something about, if not reality, this fictional reality, whereas I would argue that although the apparent aim of some rule sets is to model a world, in reality, what they are doing is creating an ebb and flow in an adventure game and that any sort of rabbit hole that is leading you down to trying to use this as a tool to figure out an objective imaginary reality is going to lead you to a lot of things that don't matter in play and are just going to hang you up as you try to enjoy something. As you alluded, or as I alluded in your words at the beginning of this, you're you're sort of having a category error question that you're trying to ask this role-playing game to be a history book instead of a novel. And by and large, uh, we try, even I, who play with more history books than many people do, the goal is to create an engaging, enjoyable story ideally in collaboration with the players uh, failing that you, the GM are, are left there hanging it out and the players um, hopefully uh, enjoy it. But the job is not to use these characters as sort of, you know, Chinese encyclopedists to map the universe around them, that anything that happens between those characters happens as a result of the role-playing involved. Uh, similarly, you don't have on Star Trek, Spock and uh, McCoy bickering back and forth about which one of them is the better biologist. They don't care. Their friendly rivalry uh, centers on other things, on the humanity or lack thereof of those characters. That's where you should be aiming because that's where story springs out of. That's where drama comes from. Uh, drama does not come from, well, McCoy went to medical school, so he probably knows a lot of biology, but Spock is science officer and he's a Vulcan, so he could probably memorize, oh, I just don't know. That's you know, on, on the show, whichever character is there and uh, needs dramatically to provide the answer provides the answer. Kirk explains physics to Scotty plenty of times. It's not about that. It's about the interpersonal drama between the characters. And that's what you should be feeding and modeling. And I would argue that anything that prevents that sort of thing from happening organically is hampering story. And so if it's like, oh, I can't talk about biology because I'm only good, whereas Spock is awesome. You're, you're weakening your character, you're weakening your play, and um, uh, you're not getting the mysterious space amoeba killed. Another thing that people worry about uh, a lot, but actually has uh, very little impact on play, is minor statistical wrinkles 
or even sort of medium-sized statistical wrinkles in probability. And this is something that I should perhaps not be admitting. It's all part of the great illusion of game design. So, for example, in the Hero uh, Wars, Hero Quest, now Quest Worlds rule set, in one of the iterations on one of the charts, there's a, a little point where the uh, probabilities go wobbly, and there's a brief moment in the chart where having a better ability makes you slightly less good than if you'd been in the previous step. And I right. have to go and look it up to explain it better than that. But the whole point is this is not a problem that a non-math person can understand when a math person explains it. And this causes, if you are a math person, a great pain and agony because you see this immediately and you know there's a 3% statistical anomaly in probabilities. But in reality, while you're playing a game, you can't tell in any sort of system that is swingy enough to not be utterly predictable anyway, meaning every system, basically, you don't actually notice these fine gradations in probability that this is a complete problem of mathematical refrigerator logic. And even though it causes you aesthetic disquiet, it doesn't impact play, right? You have to have a pretty big probability shift to start skewing things before you really notice them. And it has to happen again and again and again, which almost never happens. And so a lot of the math behind rules essentially is a uh, theatrical sham there to uh, create uh, the notion of uh, good order in the universe when really uh, what they're trying to do is give you a very broad general feeling that this number is better than that number, that some people are tougher than others in certain areas, which goes back to our first example, uh, but also that things are unpredictable and you never know what's going to happen when you roll a die. This is going to be uh, ammunition for the anti-Lawsian faction, if such benighted souls there be, to use on you. I do not have quite the cavalier attitude towards probabilities that you do. I feel like one of the things that play does is it creates unconscious expectations that you can in fact learn to recognize or, or float on after you know hundreds of die rolls lots of sessions at the table and that therefore maybe the probability would matter a little and i'm a fellow humanities nerd I, and let me jump in here i'm not setting myself up as captain understands the math but i know enough about probability to be able to you know tweak a dice roll or a, a dice rolling system so I feel like it does come up, but in meta play more than it comes up directly at the table, which is narrowly agreeing with you. But I think in the broader sense, and again, it depends. Is that one little 3% Philippi overlap? Does that happen just in one class of one sort of thing? So this is psionic mass combat. It's going to wrinkle. Well, psionic mass combat is monkeys anyway. So who can say if it comes up in every single, you know, general task, then you are going to notice that uh, the lack of intuition behind some famous and much beloved engines, such as the original storyteller engine, indicate that it's not that big a deal to people that they can, you know, quite easily conquer the subconscious shudder of uh, illogicality uh, and continue to, to, to play and roll. And they don't mind that some combinations of dice make you worse than other combinations of dice because they're telling a story about vampires in frilly shirts and the question is irrelevant. When I did vampire, I tried to sort of uh, pull it down so that you could, if you were the sort of person who looks at probabilities and uh, calculates in your head that you could get to a number and play that way as well. But I don't see the, the first one as obviously having broken play for very many people. I think that it creates a sub current in play that, as you mentioned about the, the, the dice, that the world is swinging and messed up, which in fairness is a pretty good description of the world of darkness. So maybe it's not even a flaw in the sense that I'm talking about. Right. And, and again, there are different orders of these. And the, and the question is how big a probability shift does it cause and how often does it come up? Mm -hmm. And certainly in the original vampire, you notice the weirdness of the botch system uh, way more than that. That comes up a lot. Yes. Yeah. The things I'm thinking of, you know, you have to have a 14 in order to, in this ability to notice this and it will then change things by 3%. Right. But even then, you know, you've, I think, uh, made my counter argument splendidly is that even when people notice it and it happens a lot, they mostly don't care. 
Yeah. Or they, they care, but they care in the same way that they would care if they'd rolled ones, right? They, they, they care because it's an example of the universe messing with them, not an example of the designer ruining their fun. Right. Right. And they cared happily when that got fixed. Exactly. And many of them complained when that got fixed. I can tell you just, you well, know, there you go. That's, <laughs> yeah. this is perhaps another topic, but there's no change that you can make to a rule set, even though you're the one who designed the original rule and you think it's broken. Somebody is actually loves the earlier version better, which I guess right. perhaps creates an overall point of either you can never be right or nobody really cares about the rules. So Ken, what's a, a thing that you can think of that people spend a lot of time caring about that actually affects play hardly at all. I would not say this affects play hardly at all, but I would say that there is a lot of concern for niche protection and that that is a a thing that people are all very, very concerned about. And I understand that concern because I think it comes from a good place of wanting everyone at the table to enjoy the game. And I think that that is absolutely correct and you should absolutely do that. But again, not to go back to my original objection, the play happens from drama and from character and from players playing their character. And if you have a party that is all elven rangers, you can still tell amazing, cool stories because guess what? That's Westerns. You can create dramatic niches for your character either outside the rule or in a a game system that is more finicky about advantages and disadvantages and flaws and whatnot, or passions in Ben Dragon's case, where again, you're playing all knights There is no niche protection. You're all the same dude, except your passions are different. And that's what makes the the game exciting. So I feel like people worry about niche protection. And that worry comes not from the sort of annoying worry. I worry other people will do it wrong. But in this case, I worry that I will, you know, forget to uh, let everyone play at the table. And I think that is the real lesson of this is that concentrate on that. Don't care about niche protection. If everyone says, I want to play an elven ranger, or I want to play a knight, or I want to play a, a gnomish illusionist. Great. That sounds like a fun, exciting party because you're going to be driven to be more creative in terms of your problem solving. And you're going to be driven to be more fun in terms of your role playing because you're going to be by definition defining yourself literally against the other characters in a way that you aren't. If one of you is an illusionist, one of you is a knight and one of you is an elven ranger and you've all got very clear uh, story and, and activity niches. So I, I feel like, you know, the people who are worried about this are worried because they actually know how to solve it, but they're worried that they will then have to solve it instead of, you know, some, you know, difference of miniatures solving it, right? Right. There's a bunch of stuff going on here. First of all, if everybody has the kind of the same specialist character, the fine gradations that separate them, it's like, oh, but I have a plus two luck bonus and I have a plus two stealth bonus. Those then become the defining things and separate your characters mechanically. And even though you're all elven rangers, I'm the lucky elven ranger and I'm the stealthy ranger and that works fine. And I agree that people are can be too concerned about niche protection, especially when they're comparing character sheets instead of playing the game, which goes back to our first item. And that niche protection can become super annoying when the party splits up or when somebody doesn't show up. Yes. It's like we've made sure that only, you know, one person can ever see the future and the person we need to see the future has gone on the pizza run. Oh, well, I guess we'll have to do the thing where he told me how to see the future for this one time and I'll do it. And then so uh, it can become actually a impediment in play, not just something that doesn't really matter in play. The one thing that I think people are right to be worried about niche protection though, is that some very crunchy rule sets, especially ones that expand with all sorts of uh, additional crunchy bits after the part of the game that was actually play tested, <laughs> and then there's another 12 books that come out is it is actually very annoying if the gnome illusionist is also better at sniping than the elven ranger, uh, especially if you're the elven ranger. And I think yeah. that's where the, the real valid concern about niche protection comes is you don't want somebody who's better than you and it's not even their specialty, but that is a problem often of uh, latter day powers not being properly tested or, or tested with other characters, right? It's like, yeah, this character is great now. He's super playable, except all the playtest groups, nobody had an Elven Ranger in it to be annoyed that the sniping ability had then just been gazumped. Right. That's not a concern of niche protection, really. That's a concern of just unbalanced uh, game design. 
right? It's not even the niche that's the problem there. It's the fact that this super gnome is able to do everything, which again, if you're all playing super gnomes, as you allude, is great, but not good if you were trying to balance it against the old school assassin or whatever. Right. So I, I think to, to blend those thoughts, the reason to be concerned about niche protection is if the game design is broken enough to make other players better at everything than you are. And that's genuinely a drag. But the idea that, you know, only I should have a sniping ability when sniping is actually something that everybody should be able to do, but you're just kind of better at them or better in a specialized way uh, because otherwise the story breaks down is is a whole uh, separate issue. Well, I think we've talked about three things. And the rule here is that when you talk about three things in a segment, you never talk about a fourth thing. That's not how segments work. Instead, you see what lies on the other side of this exciting commercial message. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The Mask of Comedy, The Mask of Tragedy, The Rising Action the Freitag's Pyramid in the background, all these bespangle, nay, decorate the narrative hut that uh, most forward-moving of all huts. Beloved Patreon backer Benjamin Rawls has a bone to pick in the narrative hut, and he writes us thusly. Yes, he has umbrage, and we're, and we're here to deal with it. Exactly, because it is our, our brand of umbrage, as perhaps Benjamin Rawls <laughs> has detected. We, no one could be more sympathetic to this umbrage than right. the two of us. And he takes umbrage thusly. I have taken umbrage, he says, with modern use of the term allegory. Ah, we love you already, Benjamin Rawls. I know the specific literary form the term originally described is relevant only to medievalists and literary historians. In my anecdotal experience, it is used to pseudo-intellectually announce that you've detected layers to a story beyond the strict recounting of fictional events without actually discussing any specifics of narrative craft, or to say this story is really about one thing and nothing else. I'm hoping that you two titans of nomenclature can help resolve my issues with the modern usage right. of the term allegory. Right. And and you know that us two titans are just going to reach to a different titan. And the only question is, which one of us will be the first to reach over to the shelf for Anatomy of Criticism by Northrop Fry? And in this case, Ken, you were the one who uh, got to it first and wrote it down first. And of course, Fry has answered completely in many stages of gradation exactly uh, where the spectrum of allegory is so that with knife-like precision, whenever you are taking umbrage at anyone's use of the term allegory, you can tell them exactly how many steps away on the allegory line they are from actual allegory. Right. So Fry begins by defining allegory because he 
is Northrop Fry, for God's sake. He says, we have actual allegory when a poet, by which he means any writer, uh, explicitly indicates the relationship of his images to examples and precepts, and so tries to indicate how a commentary on him should proceed, which is to say that when Spencer is writing The Fairy Queen, he's right there in the text saying, that's Queen Elizabeth, right there, that's her. You get yes. that, right? Okay. Yeah. Moving so on. one way to tell that you're dealing with real allegory is that it completely drops the idea that the it is not the writer's job to interpret the text for you. In right. this case, in an allegory, it is the writer's job to interrupt the text in order to interpret it for you and then tell you again in case you missed the point. Right. And uh, Fry continues, if he does this continuously throughout the work, we may say cautiously that he is writing an allegory. Allegory to Fry is one of many narrative tools, one of many narrative techniques that you use. And there is a continuum of them from the naive allegory to the paradoxical allegory. And the naive allegory has more public references. It's more obvious. The meaning comes first and the action is formed to fit the meaning. And then when you get all the way down to paradoxical allegory, it's self-referential. It's inobvious. It's a private joke. Uh, the language comes first. The meaning derives from the language in an emergent way. And so he draws a spectrum beautifully, by the way, from continuous allegory, which is what you and I and Northrop Fry and Benjamin Rawls would call allegory. Uh, and that's your Dante. Uh, that's Spencer's Fairy Queen. That's John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, things like that. On the far end of it, he puts editorial cartooning. So there you go, John Kavalik. <laughs> You're at the noted allegorist. Noted allegorist. Yes. Um, then through after uh, Spencer and Bunyan and that crowd, you get to intermittent allegory where the author clearly steps back to say, ha ha. And that's like your Nathaniel Hawthorne with the Scarlet Letter or a lot of stuff that happens in Ibsen plays or just most standard novels of the 19th century, which yeah. will stop the action in order to lay a bunch of uh, maxims and stuff on you. Yeah. Melville, you know, Moby Dick, I think goes in there. Although Moby Dick is maybe the, the hinge that takes us into the mid allegory, which is to say that the job of the novel is to, to describe a doctrinal interest or a doctrinal subject, but the object of the novel is not moral education. So the examples there that Fry gives is John Milton, uh, Milton, is, you know, setting his story about the fall of uh, Satan and the fall of man, but he's not saying, therefore, kids, don't do drugs and disobey God. He's right. saying, I'm just going to tell you Genesis, but in a really cool way. And I would say that's where C.S. Lewis belongs. That's where Narnia is, is he's not doing an allegory, or if he is, he's doing it in the Hawthornian way, but he's telling the story of Jesus just you know, right. but that's the, that's the matter of the novels. That's not, um, the, uh, the, the point of the novel is to make sure that everyone doesn't eat Turkish delight. Right. Right. But there, there's definitely messaging in there even more, I think, yeah. than with, with Milton, where I think he's starting off with that. And it's just, oh no, it's a cool story, right? That the, yep. that sometimes you can just start making things complex and introducing ambiguity right? and dramatic ambiguity, I guess, is on the other end of the spectrum from allegory. Whereas if a, an allegory fails if you don't know exactly what the point was and you don't then obey the call to action, whereas traditional ambiguous fiction fails if you can too obviously see a point and an instruction, right? And so right. often we will, in today's world, criticize things for being didactic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly feel that way. I try to, you know, I, I feel that I have failed if I'm making an obvious point when I'm writing fiction, that even that it should be ambiguous like life is mm -hmm. so that that's the real test of, of allegory i would argue is uh the clarity of its didacticism yeah as we continue we move into places where the allegory is implicit in the symbolism or it's emergent from the text and that's where you get shakespeare i would think that's where i'd probably put tolkien that tolkien is unleashing his narrative and also there are uh, symbolic content to it. Right. And Which then, brings up, uh, sorry to interrupt your yeah. spectrum yet again. Your spectrum yet again. We, we've already interrupted it. We might as well keep going. Is that the more overtly Christian a piece is, the more it is going to be called allegory, whether uh, somewhat accusatively sometimes, mm -hmm. without actually necessarily being allegory. Yeah. And in the same way that you get uh, the, the more 
overtly Marxist a piece is, the more it will be called didactic. We, for some reason, don't call that allegory, although it's just as allegorical in a way. Right, because we're not supposed to admit the religious structures uh, underlying <laughs> Marxism. No, that would be that would be hurtful and wrong, and we yes. should never, ever do that, kids. Um, we should do an allegory to that effect. Anyway, moving even further, you have a single symbol that emerges within the narrative as opposed to being leaned on. So this is where Henry James would go where, uh, and I would argue the Gothic fits a lot of it is that the, certainly you can, you can demonstrate the symbols. You can see that they exist, but they're not even making the moral point that no. uh, Hawthorne is, for example, there are things in it that are numinous mm-hmm. that resonate with you that call to other forces, mm-hmm. but you're no longer uh, in an area where clear interpretation is desired. You're, you're entering, and certainly with James, when we talk about his most famous horror story, ambiguity is absolutely desired. Right. And so we're uh, entering, and the Gothic is a, a world of uh, mystery, and certainly we're now entering the area of the spectrum that I'm personally more comfortable rambling around in. And, and this is also where I would put Lovecraft, is in that uh, space. Then we continue to move into allegory that has a purely ironic or personal correlation. And that's uh, where I would put Nabokov's Pale Fire. Definitely, it's where uh, Fry puts T.S. Eliot, that you either have to have, you know, read all of uh, Western literature, like T.S. Eliot, or you have to be in on the joke, like with Don DeLillo, and that's where the allegory, or that's where the symbolism, that's where the referentialism exists. And that's where uh, PhDs love that stuff because that's where you dig it out and you uh, get to do lots and lots of research and you get to definitely say what the butterfly is supposed to be. And that's good fun. Right. So it's ambiguous, but the thought is mm-hmm. that if you have the key, you'll open it up. So you that gets us into Joyce territory as Yes, well. exactly. And then at the far end, you have stuff that's deliberately opaque and contradictory, uh, which Fry uses Dada as an example of. I, I think most Dada wants to be that and winds up you know, falling farther down towards naive allegory myself. But that may be an example of the habit that Benjamin Rawls and Northrop Fry disagree with is that people who want to feel superior to a thing say, oh, that's just allegory, as opposed to actually engaging with this, uh, the matter on its merits, right? Right. And so, uh, again, all, all we're doing is is adding stuff to Fry here. Mm-hmm. and <laughs> It's all anyone should do, by the way. Right. <laughs> And I guess the, the point to draw to that is often uh, allegory. There's several, you know, sort of superior things that you can use, say about yourself by using the word allegory. Mm-hmm. One of which is that the writer has a different philosophy than yours, and and likely that philosophy is uh, is Christian, or just that you're saying that uh, it's obvious. But you know, a genuine allegorical work, as uh, Benjamin also suggests, is probably old enough and dry enough that it's it's hard to uh, enjoy. And certainly you can't play an allegory at the game table because the whole point is it's meaning is fixed. Nothing could be more scripted than being an allegorical character. And right. Your job yeah. is just to fulfill the mean. I suppose maybe there could be like an allegorical cooperative card game or something where your job is to uh, weed out all of the ambiguity from a narrative and make sure that you, you know, tell the true myth with the good uh, message at the end. And I bet come to think of it without being that familiar with the field, there's probably a bunch of Christian games for kids that do exactly that. They do something on the order of, you know, you know, put the story of Jesus in order and, you know, get, get the bad parts out. And of course the the sort of the fun irony is that things that were naive allegory when they were written, like the pearl or the rose have shifted into being the hard kind of allegory, uh, the personal correlation type, because no one understands the medieval mindset anymore. The references have shifted. to The, the references have right? all yeah. shifted. And then the way that you now have to go to footnotes to find out who all those people are that Dante is boiling alive in, in the Inferno, you don't know what people who read the Rose or uh, listened to the Pearl thought because... You have to read Latin and you have to have, you know, gone to Catholic church forever and lots of other things have to happen. So only medievalists get the allegory, which was naive allegory or uh, continuous allegory when it was written and is now all the way over to the ironic or personal allegory where you have to do graduate level research to even begin to get the jokes. And, right. you know, sh- some of Shakespeare's is, is sort of shifting in that direction as well. And that's just, you know, the, the nature of, you know, time marching ever onward, I guess. Right. 
And I guess the ultimate example of that sort of shift is that an allegory that was understood at its time can then become prophecy, as, as in the book of Revelations. <laughs> right. It's an editorial with cool monsters in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the best kind of editorial. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and that's why John Kavalik's uh, editorial cartoons, which if I understand are full of monsters, mm-hmm. are, are the best. Yeah. And so an allegory can so depart from its time and from the codes that it is connected to that it can then seem to be a description of a, a, a reality, a, a mystical reality, a mystical future reality in that case. But there are uh, plenty of people who are reading that for uh, a literal meaning that it was never meant to contain. And that, of course, is the whole point of not saying that some one quality inheres irreducibly to a single artistic work because people change, society changes, civilization changes. And what, you know, Merchant of Venice was a comedy. When it was written, now it's a tragedy. The Merchant of Venice did not change. We did a little bit. And we're like, oh, maybe it's not as funny to have that happen. <laughs> right. And and it's a testament to the ambiguity levels of Shakespeare and the depth of it that you can flip it on its head and it still plays. It, it still works, right? Although people generally cut off the fifth act for a lot of reasons when they do that. Yeah. So the uh, first of all, Benjamin Rawls is correct. Don't misuse the term allegory. Don't allow others to do it. Uh, roll your eyes if people say, well, that's just an allegory because that is like the, te- that's the tell that they don't know that they didn't listen to this segment. Right. Always follow Northrop Fry. Do we have any other takeaways? But maybe also don't tell them they're wrong on, on Twitter because why bother? Yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Just don't bother yourself. That's the, that's the, the, the great wisdom. Uh, we've looked at Northrop Fry. Is there, we, we can't, as you say, I think people have used components of allegory. In games, so the monsters out of Dante are all over D and D, and good for them. Yeah, there's lots of things in allegories that you can uh, give uh, hit points to. Right, El Sprague de Camp uh, famously sent his character, uh, the Incomplete Enchanter, to various allegorical worlds, and the fun of that is the ironic modern fiction encountering things like the fairy queen or the Kalevala. I mean, that's good fun. And I think you could do that in a, in a game space uh, because that's literally what we do every time that we say the Gothic, but we know about it and right. you're doing basically that same thing. I guess you could be like a sorcerer who could summon allegorical figures. Yeah. So you have your book of allegory and they all have very clear meanings and stuff. And so some of the allegorical figures are nicer than others, but they all have different powers. And there's a Bruce Z- Sterling novel called Zeitgeist. That's actually, really, really good um, in which sort of flattening two-dimensional figures to make them archetypal also makes them powerful. So there's a bit in it where someone is the allegorical, uh, they're not the allegorical, they're the archetypical uh, super spy. They're James Bond, and suddenly they're in our universe. It's not the last action hero, but it's, you know, it's about, you know, construction of reality. It's It's a really good novel, and it talks about what happens if an if an archetype, or in our case, an allegorical character, does emerge into a more complex world? And what if it wins? What if Britomart is actually pure and true and strong and beautiful because she's meant to be the virginity of Queen Elizabeth? And that makes her unstoppable in our modern uh, TikTok universe. Uh, right. Well, I think this segment is now reaching the point where it may become didactic. Oh, uh, no. And in order to maintain our ambiguity, let's quickly rush through this commercial into whatever segment lies on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. 
Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through. This podcast is not a hoax, cat or otherwise. Help keep that statement true, alongside such fluffy Patreon backers as... Ariel Celeste! Eric Saltwell! Jeffrey Pittman! Linda and Mike Schiffer! And Peter Nix! It's time to once again go back into history, but this time, the stovepipe hats and the uh, jaunty boots have cat hair on them, because uh, we're going to look into an incident that is a fascinating layered kitty treat of uh, hoax and reality. Hoax, it becomes an, a hoax of a hoax, but then becomes reality. You would think that something with uh, cats in it wouldn't be that weird, unless you know cats. Yeah. And Ken, what you know about and can tell us about is the Chester cat hoax. Yeah, which is technically, as you alluded, the Chester cat hoax hoax but it's the chester cat hoax hoax that turns real spoiler alert spoiler alert so let's start uh, as you started with the chester cat hoax so according to the chester chronicle on september 1st 1815 quoting a limerick paper which is likely the limerick journal in august of 1815 leaflets posted around chester said the british government were uh since they're gonna park napoleon on saint helena they need to get rid of all the rats and mice in saint helena that's just so, basic logic napoleon's yeah. gonna be there get rid of the rats and mice get, get the, the rest the emperor's do. coming make it look nice so the government is offering a uh, big money for your cat uh 16 shillings for a, a tomcat uh 10 shillings for a lady cat and uh half a crown what the heck for a kitten as long as he can bite a mice and uh, it just, uh, I'm sure that the leaflets had darling etchings on them. Yeah. And the different prices uh, is such a great level of documentary detail. It's a beautiful touch. Uh, so they say, you know, bring your cats around to this given address and uh, we'll, uh, the, the government will be there. The man will pay you out. Uh, he'll probably have a red coat. You'll know him. Uh, so about 3,000 people in Chester uh, show up with their cats. And this is uh, from the uh, Chester Chronicle. Um, there were cats in baskets, cats in boxes, cats squirming restlessly in the warm clutch of children. What a great line. I mean, <laughs> hugs. Those children obviously have not been informed as to what's going to happen. <laughs> right. Well, the children were lower, uh, were, were lower class uh, kids in Chester. They wanted that half crown, I promise you. But the house is empty. No one has ever lived there. Uh, and according to the Chester Journal's uh, source, next morning, more than 500 cats were found drowned in the waters of the D. So this hoax was not without its element of tragedy and brutal tragedy at that. So this uh, story gets repeated endlessly as a hilarious hoax. It runs as little side items in newspapers all over the English-speaking world, America, Canada, Britain, Australia, everybody loves the story of the Chester cat hoax. It's good fun, you know. <laughs> and, and and it's like, fun? Really? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, fun was different then. Yeah. Uh, in 1910, Bram Stoker compiles a book of famous hoaxes and includes it. Uh, so it has a, a nod in from a delightful fellow. But it turns out that according to the Chester Chronicle, which you suppose should know, the hoax never happened. There was no leaflets. There was no crowd of my, of cats. There were no dead cats floating in the River D. The Limerick Journal made it up. And as the Chester Chronicle says censoriously, this may be classed rather as a Limerick than a Chester hoax. We are surprised that Mr. Flint, the editor of the Limerick paper from which we have copied the following, would allow any quizzing spark, and quizzing spark means practical joker, to impose upon him with so improbable a story. He gives it, however, as an actual fact and details it with much confidence. Nevertheless, continues the Chester Chronicle, the story may please some of our readers and serve to show how easily our friends of the sister kingdom are hoaxed. <laughs> so the Chester Chronicle, of course, realizes the real joke is on the Irish, 
not on the cats. Right. And, uh, it's fun ruining and an elbow jab at the Irish. And an elbow jab at the Irish. It's really, you know, it, it's a, it's a double play, all props to the Chester Chronicle. But meanwhile, the fake hoax, which I remind you was reported all over the English speaking world as a real hoax, uh, inspires a real hoax. And, uh, the first case of that is in Dublin in 1885. Someone runs an ad in the Irish Times uh, that says, Cats, immediately, a gentleman returning to Auckland, commissioned to import a number of cats, offers two shillings for grown cats, one shilling for kittens, to be brought in small baskets, which will be allowed for, <laughs> so they'll pay you for the basket, or they'll give you your basket back, I'm not sure what that means, to the booking office at the Carlisle Pier between 6.50 and 7 o'clock p.m. on Monday, inquire for Mr. Weston. That's 10 minutes to process all those cats. Yeah, well, Mr. Weston knows what he's doing, um, which is not showing up. Uh, the result is 150 individuals laden with cats, some stolen, arrived at Carlisle Pier, and uh, a good laugh was had again on the Irish. Right, and, and I hope in the real version of the hoax that the cats and all end up in the river. I will tell you that the reporting of this incident was absolutely clear because it was writing now for middle-class readers. All the cats are fine. No <laughs> kitties are harmed. The, the ASPCA is on the site. The kitties will not be injured. The SPCA, rather, is on the site. Uh, kitties will not be injured. They were all immediately sent to a farm upstate where they could run and play. Please do not ask about the cats. And a similar actual version of the prank happened in Quebec in 1898, in Ballymena, in Ireland in 1906, in Red Hill, in Surrey in 1907, and in Waterloo, Iowa in 1955. Uh, which late. just goes to show you. Um, and in Waterloo, it was the leaflet method from the original, original hoax hoax. And in Quebec and Ballymena and uh, Red Hill, it was the newspaper advertising method that had worked so well in Dublin. And again, when the reports came back from Surrey, uh, which is the only one of these that I was able to find, um, again, everyone was very concerned that no one worry that the cats are all fine. That the cats are good. Uh, but this does not end our story, Robin. That's only two or maybe three levels of, of weirdness. There is also a tradition in newspapers of making up the hoax about other towns. So, uh, Sunderland reports that those jerks over in Hackney have fallen for the cat hoax. And a newspaper in Cork says, oh, you know who's dumb? The guys in New Ross in Wexford, they fell for the cat hoax. Those idiots. And that was in 1910 and 1912. So there is a flourishing subgenre of making up the cat hoax hoax and claiming that your rival town fell for it. And the Quebec prank may be the same thing because it's an English language newspaper saying, guess what ad appeared in the French language newspaper in Quebec? It's the cat ad again. Oh, those, those maroons, those goofs. And then I guess the final cherry on this Sunday of cats and not cats is in 1919, there was a story that went around the world uh, that said the British Army had recruited 500,000 cats in uh, 1916 uh, to sniff out poison gas in the trenches. And that did not happen. Uh, I'm not saying that it wouldn't have been a smart idea to put 500,000 cats into the trenches because the trenches are full of rats. I know that uh, from movies and uh, trenching. So... They they should have done it, but like so many things the British Army should have done, they didn't done it. And so we have a hoax about a actual attempt that wasn't also actual. So it's a fake story about a fake attempt. And then finally, we have a case in Jersey City in 1925, which is reported by the Washington Star or Examiner. I forget which Washington paper. So it might be the one where you say, get a load of those rubes, or it might just be that Jersey City's uh, newspaper didn't report it because it was embarrassing. So... It's hard to say whether the Jersey City 1925 case is the one or the other, but who can, and I, I, we're now so down the, the, not the rabbit hole, I guess the, the cat hole that, uh, we have no idea what's going on right. at, at this so point. All you need to do to make this sort of a precursor of the esoterrorists is to add some outer dark demons who then come along and, uh, stalk the people who showed up with the cats or wrote about the cats because this is a classic esoterror. M.O. played out in real life, where you take something that was originally a hoax and then stage it to make it real, and then you create the psychic disjunction that, uh, in the that setting, allows the demons to come into the world. So you could easily do it that way, right? It's a, a, a way of just sort of 
uh, creating a mental disorder, or it can just be, you know, you have a wacky heist that you're uh, staging. So of course you get people to show up on the, uh, at the front of the post office uh, with all the cats so that you can, you know, hit the safe in the back of the uh, post office. But I think it's actually that world warrior one version where we have both cats that may or may not exist and poison gas together that I think suggests that this is an attempt to find examples of that rare subspecies of cat, the Schrodinger cat, and to gather them up before, you know, before it is even, even know what they uh, do. So it may be time travelers, it might be people with uh, oracular powers, uh, but uh, they are, uh, it's necessary, of course, that the cats may or may not exist. So that's where the hoax comes in. And then you have people deliver the cats and, uh, you know, this test to make sure whether they're good mousers or not is to find out, in fact, if they're quantum cats that exist simultaneously in one reality and then not in the other, or just simply a thought experiment. But we don't want that to let that enter into our, our equation because we need a magic realist cat. So let's we need actual, actual quantum actual superposed cats. Schrodinger cat thought experiment is because that, of course, it, it is itself a fun rumor. And I feel like if you're going to do that as your story, you owe it to yourself to have the British deploying the cats at Beloy and Santerre, where our buddy Randolph Carter is serving as an American volunteer in the war. And maybe his exposure to these quantum cats is what brings him back uh, to his uh, a career of being a fabulous horror writer and eventual occult explorer. That it's that that moment of quantum cat superposition yeah. that makes him a dreamer and an occultist. Uh, he goes and works with Harley Warren and then uh, blossoms out in the beautiful figure of lo- of uh, dreaming love that we know him as today. The cat that is his pet in the trenches that uh, no one else can see. Its name is Ulthar. Its name is Ulthar. Exactly. And uh, the trenches, of course, could lead any kind of where that you can um, lead it into a uh, deep, uh, horrible ghoul land or it can go uh, in Garden of Forking Paths style into alternate uh, or quantum superposed uh, realities. You've got a bunch of dream hounds that were in the trenches, so maybe some of the surrealists could uh, come back with similar cat exposure. This could all be, you know, the entire surrealist movement could be cat scratch fever, basically. Well, so now that we've uh, established the reality of uh, this particular cat hoax, I think it's uh, time for us to head uh, toward a commercial, which is in no way a hoax. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kaligati, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child, looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time to once more enter that most ill-defined of huts. The hut where, I don't know, it's it's sort of on the borderland of all the other things that we talk about, but it's also sort of indefinable. But, oh, there over in the corner, there is the alien... Uh, the gray alien, the Nordic alien, they're drinking a kombucha, they're looking out the window, they're waving to the alien big cat who's screaming on the moor. We must be in the Lipton-y hut. And this time around, estimable Patreon Becker, Ed's bracket speaker in digressions, unbracket, 
wants to know about the Bridgewater Triangle, which is a thing that you uh, dropped a while back. And uh, I, I think the lesson here is going to be that if you draw three points on a map, connect them, there's going to be a lot of weirdness in the middle of the triangle that makes. But maybe that's a spoiler, Ken. What's the Bridgewater Triangle? Well, as I'm sure I mentioned when I was discussing uh, Ghosts of the Bridgewater Triangle, a book that I bought in Rhode Island by Christopher Bolzano, I'm sure I mentioned that I learned about the Bridgewater Triangle at a talk given at DragonCon by a uh, local elliptonist named John Brightman, local to Massachusetts, not local to DragonCon. And uh, I knew nothing. And at the end, I knew everything, and I mostly knew that I loved the Bridgewater Triangle. But as you point out, and as John Brightman in his own way reminded us, it's uh, more of an octagon. <laughs> and I, you know, maybe that was the key. Well, you catch more weirdness if you connect eight points. Right. It's even more weirdness. But I think what he meant is that there's so many fun stories about uh, Brockton that he hates to leave it out of the triangle. But anyway, the classic Bridgewater Triangle is... Uh, Abington, Rehoboth, and Freetown, Massachusetts, which is down in the sort of southeastern part of the state. The Freetown tip almost gets to Fall River of Lizzie Borden fame, and the Rehoboth tip almost gets to the border of Rhode Island of H.P. Lovecraft fame. Lauren Coleman coined the name in 1980 and mapped the triangle. It went national in his book, Mysterious America, 1980. Speaking of uh, well-beloved anomalists, uh, Lauren Coleman is one of them. And as you suggest, you draw a triangle around stuff, especially in Massachusetts, you get weirdness. Uh, specifically, you get a big swamp called the Huckamuck Swamp. Uh, that's what drew Lauren Coleman's attention to it, because it was called Devil's Swamp in the Puritan days. And Huckamuck itself is from a Wampanoag word, probably meaning something like House of Evil Spirits or House of Ghosts. And uh, sure enough, the Huckamuck Swamp's got a lot of cryptids in it. Uh, there's an eerie giant black snake that comes out of the Huckamuck Swamp in every seven years since 1939, at least. So what makes it eerie specifically as, as opposed to just It's being... very, very big. Yeah. <laughs> and it creeps you out when you see it, not in a regular snake way, but it's, it's the size of a stovepipe. And uh, that was probably a more helpful analogy in 1939 than it is now. But there, if you imagine Abe Lincoln's hat, but a giant snake, maybe that's what you got. The stovepipe is not, I got to say, not that giant. There are bigger snakes, but I don't think that there are bigger snakes in Massachusetts, I believe is the problem. Right. If you saw that snake in Brazil, you'd say, well, that's that's not a that's not that's a, a devil snake. Anaconda. That's just a regular snake. Yeah. But if you see it in a Huckamuck swamp, you got a problem. Okay. But Robin, all right, laugh off this. In 1971, on Bird Hill, eerily named Bird Hill, uh, near the swamp in Easton, they saw a pterodactyl. So, are you just going to say, oh, that's not a scary pterodactyl, that's just a regular pterodactyl? I would not like to meet a pterodactyl. Who, who is they? Aerial witnesses. Aerial, okay. Uh, a man named Downey, in fact, saw it. Thomas Downey. Right. There are uh, alien big cats have been seen in Rehoboth. There was even an alien big cat hunt. In Rehoboth in 1972, there was a alien big cat. It was more of a tabby, I think, from the description, but was enormous. Seen in Mansfield, known as the Mansfield Mystery Cat in 1999. That sounds like that's a, a cut scene from uh, the musical. But anyway, there we are. They had hellhounds in Abington. They uh, tore the throat out of a deer, and uh, they were very worried about the hellhounds. And then they have Bigfoot. They have Bigfoot sites in Huckamuck Swamp in the 70s and the 80s when it was sort of a national hobby. I don't know if the kids today know about this, but in the 70s, people used to do a thing called Get High, and then they'd <laughs> drive around and uh, talk themselves into nonsense. Nowadays, I don't, I don't know what you do, but in the 70s, people did that a lot, and it turns out uh, Bigfoot would often find those people because he was, uh, I guess, drawn to the smell of yeah. marijuana smoke. But anyway. Well, I think we need to get back to people being on a lot of drugs and seeing Bigfoot instead of like founding some weird political splinter cell. Well, I mean, uh, but you I say what you want, but suddenly there's going to be like a Bigfoot party yeah. and it's going to, you know, win Oregon and Idaho. Anywho, the history of the weirdness of Bridgewater Triangle goes all the way back. Some people say it began at King Philip's War when a magical wampum bracelet was lost or stolen. Others say it's because the Puritans Killed a lot of people, a lot of Indians in the swamps in King Philip's War. But uh, Lauren Coleman says, nope, the Wampanoags wouldn't have named it Devil Swamp if it weren't already haunted when they found it. So King Philip's War was just drawn to the evil within Huckamuck Swamp. Now, now this raises the question of how many swamps are like called Wholesome Swamp or 
Happy Swamp. Pleasant Swamp. Well, I mean, I guess there's a difference between the Great Dismal Swamp, like in Virginia, right. and the actually a devil swamp. I think, you know, the, the Happy Fun Swamp, you're right, is is pretty uh, unrepresented in swamp nomenclature. Anyhow, in uh, 1881, on September 7th, there was what they called a Yellow Day, Robin, where the, the whole skies over the Bridgewater Triangle turned yellow and yellow smoke rose up from the ground. Fun ruiners say there was a big forest fire in Canada. I feel like those people can shut up. Yeah, clearly that was Carcosa starting yeah. to warm up. Uh, Coleman claims there was a colonial yellow day, but never gives a date, which makes me think that he's just wrong. But feel free. There was a skyquake in 1760, followed by a meteor. So that's something. Meteor may have been a UFO. There were a giant lantern was seen over Bridgewater in 1908. Uh, Abington and Rehoboth both had UFO cases in 1966. And there were two UFO landings in Taunton, right in the spang middle of the triangle in 1976. There's a bunch of crimes committed all over. People will say, oh, it has much worse crime than the rest of Massachusetts. Beg to differ, given that Boston is the rest of Massachusetts, but still. It's also famous for Taunton State Hospital, which is a giant uh, Kirkbride plan insane asylum uh, built there in 1854 with all the gothic terribleness that that implies. It, of course, is super haunted, and it, of course, was super badly maintained by the state. And therefore, there was an awful lot of pain and suffering that happened in the Taunton State Hospital for ghosts, comma, for the generation of. Route 44 in Rehoboth has its own phantom hitchhiker. It's not a lovely lady like in Chicago. It is a man called the Red-Headed Hitchhiker. And you pick him up and he just gets creepier and weirder in your car right. until he either vanishes or says something gnomic and vanishes. Right. You, you can dispel him by taking him to Duncan. Yeah. Uh, well, that's how you dispel anything, really. In the middle of the triangle also, they have their own Miskatonic. It's Bridgewater State University, which... Amongst its haunts is a phantom horse, a poltergeist in uh, Shea Durgan Hall, I believe, and uh, a murderous undergraduate, a, a guy who apparently strangled his girlfriend and young ladies, and I don't speak to their state of highness, uh, awaken with the feeling of hands on their throat, often in the dorms in Bridgewater State. So it's not just fun haunted, it's dangerous bad haunted. There's a rock with mysterious petroglyphs in the middle of the river called Dighton Rock that has now been moved from the middle of the river to its own little museum just north of Freetown. And of course, the Freetown Fall River State Forest has plenty of satanic sightings, witches, and a porcupine-like hobgoblin of the Wampanoag called the Puckwudgie apparently lives in the Freetown Fall River State Forest. So lots of good fun in the Bridgewater Triangle. And I haven't even gotten to the UFOs in Brockton because I don't feel like we need to. I don't feel like we need to go to the whole octagon. I feel like right. the triangle itself is, is, I think it would be actually fun. And I have run geographically constrained Call of Cthulhu games many times before. I think it would be super fun to run a 70s Call of Cthulhu game set in the Bridgewater Triangle where you've got all of that stuff is happening. And it's sort of, you know, Buffy style where you've got a monster of the week and then sometimes the mythos shows up and it's the big bad. I think that would be gigantic fun and I totally recommend it. I think this is all cool, but I still feel... Like, there's sort of a geometrical branding issue here. Is that when I hear there's a triangle, I want to know that it's an area where ships and planes disappear. Ah. And that this is basically, you know, the contents of your cool Fortiana in a constrained area. And uh -huh. it is brilliant to call it a triangle yep. to make us go, oh, there's a thing going on. But it feels like it's it's lacking a narrative or uh, a reason, you know, I, I just dispute the triangleness of it, especially when it turns out it's an octagon. I think that's just great branding for the fact that most places that are old have a bunch of cool stuff in them. I absolutely, I would play in your seventies Cthulhu game, but I, I don't know if that, I don't know if this rises to the level of being a triangle. Well, I mean, I guess that is the question is, does a triangle have to swallow ships and planes? I don't know that there are vanished ships and planes. I've never heard anything about that. I mean, if you take Lauren Coleman and other ghost hunters, including Christopher Bolzano, at their word, the incidence of cases in the Bridgewater Triangle is higher. So it may just be that you plot it all on a map. It turns out this is a, a cluster of dots and you can draw a triangle around it for marketing purposes. Right. I will say that when I went through George Eberhardt's Geobibliography of Anomalies, the Bridgewater Triangle did not particularly pop out as 
an area where there was a lot more anomalies than other random Massachusetts towns. So to the extent that we are fun ruining the statistical likelihood of the triangle, I think you may be right. But on the other hand, Bridgewater Triangle, Robin. Right. But wait, because there is no narrative that impels us toward there being a triangle, obviously that's the point of the campaign, is that you are trying to establish why people say there's a triangle, where the triangle exactly is, and then the climactic event is the triangle actually starts to appear. It manifests. You've got your glowing lines, and it turns out that this is all, you know, back-projected magical energy of what horrible thing happens at the end to make a, a triangle actually appear in, you know, near but not in Boston. Right. And that that's your big deal, is that there's the idea that there's a triangle, the characters start seeing triangles everywhere, and it's the... Oh, so it's like Uzumaki, but with triangles. Exactly, because, you know, triangles are easier to draw than spirals. Yep. And I, I think we, uh, not the fun ruiners, but the fun creators, have to add another element to this to, right. to justify... The triangleness. Mysterious triangle glossolalia, or stigmata, I guess is the word I'm looking for. There's a haunted rock called Profile Rock. That's sort of triangle shape, but also it looks like a Wampanoag sachem named Anawan. So maybe Anawan is is, is hooked up. Maybe he was uh, trying to keep the triangles away. I, I do want to point out, since we're talking about triangles, that many modern UFOs are triangle shaped now. That the, the flying triangle is a uh, UFO that started being big. I'm going to say right around the time that United States experimental aircraft airframe started to be triangular, but yeah, who can say? <laughs> I'm going to say, I was going to say that. Yeah. You beat me to it. Yeah. Well, um, anyway, the, the flying triangle UFO is a thing. And so that I think could be part of your mystery. And if it drops into your, into your seventies game where it is still weird and strange, I think that would be kind of a, a fun, uh, ironic, but still creepy moment for your characters, right? That there's, this, this weird uh, uh, triangular stigmata that's showing up in the universe. I'm sure that if you look at the glyphs on Dighton Rock, one of them's a triangle. So go nuts with that, right? Right. And and the cataclysmic event at the end could be the landing of the triangular spacecraft. Yeah, that could be part of it, certainly. Yeah, you could, you could maybe try and figure... I mean, pterodactyls, triangular wings... Triangular head. Okay. Yeah. Now, now we're just reaching. So it's time for us to end this episode <laughs> and come back a mere week from now with another one with, I don't know, possibly circles or tetrahedrons, some other sort of shape. Who polyhedrals, I'm sure. They'll definitely be polyhedrals. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep this podcast from being mauled by an allegory alongside such beloved backers as... Philip Masters. Aryan Poutsma. Brian Malcolm. Drew Eichholz. And Daniel Markvig. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate avian brigandage with our latest design, Stormy Petrels of Crime. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>